Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Joanna Bork, professor of history at Birkbeck, University of London, to talk about her new book, Disgrace, Global Reflections on Sexual Violence, out basically right this minute, August 2022, with Reaction Books. Hello, Joanna, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jana. It's really, really great to be able to talk to you today. That is lovely. And how are you? How was your morning? I'm really good. I've been doing some writing this morning and just trying to think through a new project of mine. Oh, exciting. That's very cool. I'll ask you about that later. Um, So this book, Disgrace, um, our first task is to locate that in your kind of intellectual constellation. Um, And your career has been interesting. Your work, you are as a very prolific scholar, um, and your career has been interesting. You start your early work is pretty standard, like within the the norms for the the discipline of history, right? You focus on Ireland and Britain, the 19th and 20th centuries. It's kind of what what we do. And then you move on into this kind of new and exciting territory. You're into warfare in a broader perspective, emotions, like notably fear, um, and probably naturally onto rape. And it seems some of your latest work is on pain and sadism. Um, and then there's the medical bent, if I'm getting that right, you've published in Lancet. So what I'm seeing here, and correct me if I'm wrong, is a deep intellectual interest in basically the very worst that humanity has to offer. <laughs> Actually, I think you're right. Um, say, um, I'm not a very popular person around a dinner table, dinner party. You know, I, I, I write on killing, I write on um, sexual violence, I write on, you know, horrible things that people do to each other but you know you're really right to identify this this shift in the way I think about the world around me and you know and and what history as a discipline can give me how history can actually help me understand the world around me and you know as you say my first early books were very mainstream social history um, I look at them now and I think, oh, goodness, that's a different person. That's not me. Um, but then, 
you know, really, really quickly, I began working on violence, and particularly in the early days, violence in wartime. And, you know, for some people listening to this, you know, who may be young, you know, when I was starting my career, the history of warfare was a male-dominated field. You know, it was all about strategy and technology and high politics. And, and I was writing a book on working-class cultures, and it's a mainstream social history book. And, you know, the only time or one of the only times that working class people, poor people, write letters and diaries is during wartime. Okay? So that's when they do it. Otherwise, we only hear their voices mediated through middle class commentators. So I started to go to the Imperial War Museum archive, which, by the way, is just great archive. I wasn't really interested in war. I was interested in what these diaries told me about their views on life and their emotions and their love life and all that. And I became really sucked in um, because all of a sudden, you know, I was reading diaries of people, men primarily, who you know were shopkeepers, who were laborers, factory workers, you know, who were happier on the shop floor than the rifle range. Who'd never fired a, a weapon. And yet to see that transformation for them becoming people who could kill Americans and British men who could, ordinary people, who could kill other people. So I you knew that, that was the beginning of my career. And I guess the beginning of my interest in violence more generally. So, you know, if I'm to characterize anything about, you know, my, uh, you know, people look at all the different topics I've looked at in all my books and they say, oh, so different, but actually... Fundamentally, as you as you alluded to just then, Yana, they are about cruelty and what humans can do to other humans and also to non-human animals. So I've actually written quite a lot about those interactions as well. Um, and I do think that history can provide a lot of help in understanding our world today. Sure. No, and I see that. I mean, these things work together. I mean, particularly even the, the idea of the working class and poverty and how poverty and violence and fear and pain come together makes a lot of sense. And then there's this nexus and you kind of pull out these pieces and talk about it. Makes perfect sense to me. Um, and I can imagine, yeah, you're a real joy at parties. I can see that. Um, so, but this is a little different and you'd written about rape before, but what, what led you to disgrace? Well, um, a few years ago, I say a few years, I think it's about 11, my goodness. I did, I wrote a book, A History of Rapists. Um, I wrote a history of perpetration of sexual violence, looking at how the person of the rapist changed over time and how society understood what led men and some women to commit acts of sexual violence, how they tried to treat that, how they tried to punish that, how that and how that changed over time. And it's really interesting. My publisher, who's a brilliant publisher, by the way, um, uh, they, they didn't want the book to be called Rapists. They wanted it to be called Rape because they said no one will read a book called Rapists, okay? called rape um but it is about perpetration and then i kind of put that kind of material aside i mean you know it's it's difficult writing about sexual violence you have to have a break and i i moved on to other topics but i increasingly in the last few years kept coming back to that that early book 
And the reason for this is things have become worse. <laughs> you know, when I wrote the book 11 years ago, I say, I think in the introduction or in one of the chapters, I can't remember now, I say, look, I'm writing this book out of anger because in the 1970s in Britain, one in every three cases of rape that um, are reported to the police end in a conviction. So 1970s, one in three. 1980s, one in five. 1990s, one in 10. Today, that is 11 years ago, one in 20. Well, I can't believe it. Today, in 2022, it's one in every 23. So in other words, we've had 40 years of feminism, of activism, of really, really, really good legal reforms. I mean, you know, the reforms I support them, they're really great. Education, and yet things have got worse for people who um, are sexually harmed. And instead of looking at it from the point of view of perpetrators, this book says, okay, let's listen to survivors. Let's historicize their experience. And I think the big thing for me personally is you know, my comfort zone is Britain, America, Australia, New Zealand. This book is global. So that was also pushing me past my comfort zone. Um, but, you know, it's really interesting to, to think, why isn't there a global history of sexual violence? I mean, why? There are really good, by the way, I have to say this, really good global histories of sexual violence in wartime. But more generally, only one chapter of my book is about wartime sexual violence, there isn't. So I just became really um, fascinated by this. Um, and I think there is another little, little kind of little footnote to it, um, which is a more um, pragmatic reason why I became, I decided to write this book. And that is I got funding from the Wellcome Trust to direct a huge program of research on sexual violence with a big team. Um, and, and that, you know, that's been really fantastic because it's also meant I've got a team of people that I can learn from, I can bounce ideas off of. Um, it's interdisciplinary, so you know, some of us are historians, but actually there's also a philosopher, there's also an anthropologist, there's also a gender studies person. So there's also that more pragmatic thing that you know I, the Wellcome Trust funds this project. Um, so that gave me a way, gave me time off, I'm really brutally honest, to, to actually do that in-depth research in, in so many different countries. So one of my questions really, which you've partially answered, is why you wanted to try to write a global history of sexual violence, because that is really ambitious. But I mean, in part, one didn't exist. Okay, that's a, that's a good reason. That'll convince a dissertation committee even that you should do the work. But I, I suspect there's more to just, it didn't happen, right? Why, why a global history? Yana, when people <laughs> Say, oh, Joanna, that's very ambitious. I know what they're really saying is that's stupid. You know, <laughs> stupid thing to do. I mean, history is is difficult. Um, I, I found it. I found it profoundly exciting and challenging. But also, it's it's difficult because it's forced me to question some underlying problems with looking just at in my case, English-speaking world. Um, so, you know, there is a real tendency for scholars in the West 
to extrapolate from a very white, um, a very um, Western way of looking at the world and extrapolate from that to the the rest of the world, sort of ignoring um, all these huge vectors of power and um, and abuse um, that that we in the West have carried out. Um, there is this real tension or real problem that we kind of see other cultures, let's say uh, Rwanda or former Yugoslavia, you know, that the problem of sexual violence has to do with their culture. Um, so have um, inadequate um, justice systems, endemic warfare, um, patriarchal societies, that somehow their culture is the problem. And then when we look at our culture, when I look at Britain or America, for example, oh, it's some bad apples. It's, um, you know, we haven't quite got there yet. We mean well. So in other words, we universalize our um, Western experience of sexual violence um, and really don't understand just what we can learn from other cultures, what they can give us in terms of solutions to the problems, but also broader understanding about you know, what sexual violence, what harm sexual violence create for, for communities and for individuals. So, you know, that, that was really what inspired me. And you know, talking to other activists and other academics in these, uh, these different countries, you know, particularly influenced by Haitian um, academics and Haitian activists, survivors, um, but also survivors throughout throughout the world. It's been it's been really um, exhilarating. Oh, I can imagine. You know, and you also, I mean, you this this global kind of a global perspective allows you to come at some universals as well that you're not going to find. No matter what it is that you might be able to say about 19th century Britain, it will only be about 19th century Britain. And you get at some like bigger kind of truths, you know, these kind of universally things, which is a, one of the great benefits of this book, which I don't know if I've said it out loud, but I absolutely loved, just FYI, absolutely love this book. Um, so fascinating, hard to read um, in places, but enjoyable. But anyway, all right. But so you've, you've done this ambitious idea of a global history of sexual violence, and then uh, you immediately, like really immediately on page three or something, you nuance and complicate the issue saying specifically, and I'm quoting here, this can only ever be a partial account of sexual violence, both physical and psychological around the world, um, which then you explain. So what? tell us why. What are some of the issues that are going on here that only lead to a partial account of sexual violence? Yeah. Um as you've already guessed, um, Jana, I'm I'm very opposed to any universalist account. You know, take a universal view is to is is actually just to ignore the the very specific experiences of people. And obviously, we can't. No one can um, do all of that. Um, but I think what I come back to time and again in the book is terror is always local. Terror is always local, which is why, by the way, the solution is local. But, you know, so forcing me to actually at least attempt 
to show that the differences between um, the experiences of sexual violence from, from all sides, um, you know, politically, legally, economically, um, culturally, socially, and ideologically, and, and so on, and so on. Some of the initial challenges were just the very basic, what am I talking about? What is sexual violence? You know, it's not an easy question to answer. Um, you know, we all know that if someone is brandishing a knife, that that's a violent act. Is you know that's that's a sex, that's going to be a sexually violent act. Okay, but you know what if someone is sort of brandishing an unsigned employment contract? You know, I mean, that's a different kind of thing. Um, do we take into account um, the legal definitions? So, for example, age of consent. You know, by law. Um, an act is sexually abusive if it takes place um, by someone who is under the age of consent. But of course, the age of consent changes just by stepping over a state line. You know, in some states, the age of consent is 10. You step over a state line and it's 20. So how are we going, when, when is sexual violence or sexual abuse taking place? You know, we may think that um, um, female genital cutting for example, is a sexually violent act, okay? But, you know, what about male genital cutting? Or what about, you know, what about that, which is pervasive all over the West? Um, you know, so, you know, so the first thing I had to grapple with was how am I going to define sex, um, sexual violence? And I come back to a really basic definition, and it's a definition that enables me to historicize what sexual violence is because it changes over time. So in my book, sexual violence basically is anything that participants or onlookers at the time say is violent or non-consensual and anything they say is sexual because sexual also changes, the definition of what's sexual changes over time as well. Um, and this just opens up, I think, the field. It enables me not to take a specific time-pacific or geographically-pacific definition of sexual violence, but to actually say, if people, let's say, in the 1830s in Pakistan think that something is sexual and think that something is violent, then what do they mean by that? It allows me to historicize all these different things. Okay, So, I mean, it's a it's not a legal definition. It's deliberately not a legal definition. Part of what I do is say, why does the law change over time? <laughs> you know, why is something, according to the law, sexually violent in 1820s and not sexual violent in the 1920s or vice versa? So how and why does definition, legal definitions of sexual violence change? Um, but it also enables me to take seriously the views of people who are experiencing sexual harms. You know, you know, I just take them seriously and say, okay, you say this was sexually harmful. Why is that? What does that tell me about society you're living in? What does that tell me about your community? Um, and I think listening to survivors is, is crucial. So the first problem that I had to do is what is sexual violence? The second is a very basic thing about what language I'm going to use. Um, because language is so... Um, sensitive when we come to, to sexual violence. Um, I'll just give you one example. The language of marital rape. 
it's a common um, term used by everyone in the field. It means, you know, a husband who is um, commits an act of sexual coercion against um, his wife. But, you know, marital rape is, is problematic because it implies that the wife is equally pro prone to commit it against the husband, um, whereas that's patently not the case. Just a simple thing like that. Um, another simple thing about victim versus survivor. You know, in America, it's common nowadays um, to use the term survivor for people who have experienced sexual harms. Um, but, I, I mean, I'm... I mean, I do talk about this. I'm really ambivalent about that. Firstly, because it's a particularly American term. Um, also, not all victims survive. Um, not all survivors of sexual harms see themselves as victims. Um, you know, the whole term survivor links into kind of very individualistic self-help American discourse um, or language about um, individuality um, and, um, and choice um, that it's just not appropriate. For example, if you're talking about people who've experienced sexual harms in um, the favelas, in for example. Um, so, you know, so I, again, that's just another example of what, what language do I use? And basically, the decision was to use the language that was most appropriate for the people I'm talking about in the particular paragraph that I'm writing. <laughs> um, All right, yeah. It's a pragmatic decision, but, you know, but it, but it is. Um, and also, you know, remember, a lot of victims are also perpetrators. Um, so that also complicates the story. You know, and you've just, you've even just, you've sp stated these problems and then you've hinted at others like coercion, you know, a marital rape. Um, what does that look like? What's at what, what's coercion? What's force? You know, some people, I mean, some of our uh, feminist foremothers would say all marriage is just inherently rape, right? That's, this is a sexual, the sec, at least sex work. And so they're just, there's all kinds of sexual violence all in all kinds of places. And then um, the other thing that, you know, when you're focusing on, uh, you want to keep the voices of the victims slash survivors in the center of the discourse and one of the important contributions here. Um, but how they experience their world is not necessarily the same, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's, there's a... I mean, there's so many responses I could give to that. But for example, there, there's a chapter in the book where I actually look at the aftermaths of sexual violence. Um, and just to do it really, really quick, you know, the idea today, we have this idea of PTSD. So um, victim survivors of sexual violence almost inevitably um, experience um, trauma, psychological trauma, and um, PTSD, symptoms of PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder. But that's a really modern idea. That's an idea that only was invented in the 1970s. Um, you know, this idea of an inner response to an outer bad event is a very modern, um, extremely modern um, concept. In, for example, early 19th century uh, Britain, um, 
trauma is not is, is incomprehensible. I mean, they're, they're, it's just a concept that is just not there. Um, but what they do have is in all the, not all, nearly all accounts of sexual violence by victims, um, they talk about insensibility. And insensibility, um, so in other words, they say, I was attacked by this man or these men, um, and I became insensible. And that does not mean um, unconscious. So they say, I was insensible and I wandered around doing this and doing that. So what they're referring to is this Victorian idea of the body as sensible, um, you know, sensibility in our language today. They would say sensible, but sensibility of the human body. Um, and so by becoming insensible, it meant that they were unable to fight off an, an attacker because the sensible, the um, sensibility body would be capable of fighting off any attacker. So for a person, for a woman to be believed that she really was attacked and raped, she has to become insensible. Okay, um, so so I mean that's just one example of you know the way both language but also the way victim survivors themselves are thinking about what happened um, is mediated through time, through geographical place. This is not language is not used in, for example, um, China. <laughs> um, you know that the way the way the culture understands violence is also the way victims enacted in their own bodies. Um, so looking at how and why that changes and, and what those concepts mean to people, I think it's just really, really fascinating. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And this, I mean, trauma is a great place to look at this, um, the, the dialectic of the response and the, and the problems, right? I mean, because there's an assumption, there's almost a mandate that survivors of sexual assault will experience trauma. And if that trauma isn't recognizable, then maybe it wasn't sexual assault, right? So this fits in with your chapter called Injustice as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I love the way you put it, mandate, um, because, you know, one of the, I'm going to say the biggest problem, <laughs> the biggest problem faced by victim survivors of sexual assault is not being believed, not even sometimes being heard let alone listened to. Um, and, you know, in order to have the harm done to you, heard, understood, responded to, um, in order to get sympathy, um, you need, victim survivors need, to act in particular ways, okay? So there are rape scripts that change throughout time. The insensibility script I was talking about a minute ago is one that 
Reformers' script today is another. And in order to be believed, you have to respond in particular ways. Now, this creates huge problems. Um, I mean, huge number of problems. For one thing, um, the script changes. People may know, not know what the script is. Um, people have very strong the law, police and law enforcement and, and our justice systems have strong views about how what a real rape is and what a real rape victim is. Um, so in the 19th century, you know, medical jurisprudence textbooks. So these are textbooks teaching um, law lawyers how to judge um, a case, a legal uh, case of crime. And they explicitly state, explicit, you cannot rape a resisting woman. Okay, so in other words, if a woman resists, she can always fight him off. Okay. Um, now, um, what's really interesting, so in other words, if a woman is raped, it means that she didn't resist which means that she must have wanted it or must have been complicit in some way or um, must have precipitated um, the assault. But what's really interesting is that that changes. Suddenly, in the um, sort of late, 20, late 19th century, you get these same medical jurisprudence textbooks saying, unless she is a delicate woman, unless she's middle class. So it becomes the working class woman who is unrapeable. The middle class woman can be raped because she's much more delicate. Um, so women have to comport themselves, have to act in particular ways to be heard and to be responded to. Now, you know, this creates problems, particularly for those who are not so au fait with that script. So working class women, minoritized women, um, women of color, um, you know, are less likely to be believed because they don't comport themselves in the same the way a sort of white, delicate, middle class woman would comport herself. So are less likely to be believed. But also there are real problems. Women who do understand how they should act, um, may go and give evidence in court. And they will say, they will minimize, for example, minimize the amount of alcohol they drank. Because they know that if they say they're drunk, <laughs> then they, they're caught, the case is going to be thrown out. You know, she was just drunk. She really wanted it. She was drunk. So, so they will lie, in other words, on the stand, trying to comport themselves well. But then, of course, the defense attorney gives evidence. No, she didn't have one and a half glasses. She had six. So, in other words, she tries to comport herself correctly. It ends up backfiring. So, you know, this is, you know, you have to, and just to come back to where you started, you have to act traumatized in order to be a true victim. If you are not traumatized, if in fact you um, are strong um, and say, not, don't cry, don't get upset, then you're less likely to be believed. Which kind of takes us to this other place about um, just generally what kind of women are rapeable, right? right? So lower class women cannot be raped. And then there's this intersectionality issue that we got at who is rapeable and who isn't and kind of across the world. Right. Intersectionality is, is one of the two crucial concepts in the book. Intersectionality, um, uh, Crenshaw was the, the person who, who 
um, made it popular. It, it was in existence before then. But basically, what it says is that it is not enough simply to um, add, for example, women of color to a pre-established um, um, analysis. So in other words, you know, so much of feminism was based on the um, responses, the views of white middle-class women when they were um, confronted by women of color saying, hey, hang on here, you are not representing my experience or our experience. What they simply did was they simply added race, ethnicity to a pre-established um, analytical um, framework. So what people like, um, people who you know, concerned with intersectionality say, is that that there is a compounding effect of race, sexism, um, heteronormativity, um, class, caste, age, generation, disability, etc., that are not simply add-ons, but they compound the harm it's done in order to understand the experience of sexual violence, you have to understand all of those elements. So it's an absolutely crucial um, concept for anyone, I think, thinking about, uh, well, anything actually, <laughs> but sexual violence in, in this particular instance. So, and, and all, it's very important to understand this, but then you also make this point, it's kind of, um, it's not a conflicting point, but it's a confounding point that, um, you know, which you talk about in um, Gender Trouble, that chapter, is the perception that of victimhood and ideas about sexual violence are kind of also part of the dialectic that contributes to this violence. People who are rapable are rapable. How do we work with that? What I mean, first of all, perhaps that should be explained a little better. I don't think I did a great job. But, but then how do we manage that? Yeah, I mean, it is all about vulnerabilities and the different layers of vulnerability that people come to the, the culture, come to society with. Um, and, you know, these vulnerabilities are are not intrinsic to the person, let's say herself, but they are imposed upon that person by those outside, which is why questions such as shame are so important if we're to understand why so many people, men, women, non-gender, non-binary genders, so many people don't report what's happened to them, and those people who are not reporting what's happened to them are those who are most likely to have multiple layers of vulnerability. And it's not only, we're not only talking about individual personal vulnerability, such as skin color or caste, but we're also talking about their communities. Because of course, reporting um, an act of sexual violence if you're coming from a minoritized community or a vulnerable community, can actually harm your whole community, not simply you. Um, and certainly, you know, African American women had this dilemma in you know in the 1970s, well, they still do, in 1970s and 80s, it became really public because they were seeing white middle-class women marching take back the night through Latina. Um, neighborhoods where, you know, it is African-Americans, women's, it's their sons 
their husbands, their boyfriends, who are being pathologized, who are being attacked here. So, you know, there is that, that real tension that was experienced and really exploded in the 70s and 80s within feminism and is still with us today, as I say. And then this is also compounded by um, your work on shame. So let's talk about the concept of shame in general, which I think is interesting because disgrace is, the title is about the the disgrace that is the fact that things have gotten worse, in fact, right? But I mean, disgrace is also, that that's a heavy burden that falls upon victim survivors of rape, right? Um, the shame that they are shamed by the act is so important. Yeah, and shame is one of the most social of all emotions because shame is not about how, what you feel you have done, um, which is more like guilt. Shame is about how you think other people think you of what you may have done. Um, so it's an intensely social um, emotion and intensely destructive because of that, um, because you're always second guessing. You're always, you know, um, you know, what does he or what does she or what do they think about me? Do they think that I wore it's my responsibility because I went out with a short skirt? You know, a poll um, a few years ago suggests that 40% of women think that if another woman goes out with a short skirt and gets raped, she is responsible, partly responsible for what happened. And yes, 40% of women think that, you know. So, you know, so shame is this powerful thing, which is why, um, you know, in the book, I talk quite a lot about the need and the, to speak out about me too, it happened to me, because part of that shame thing is this idea that, oh, it's only me. It happened to me because I drank too much or because I did something, went out late at night by myself or because I don't have the, the best locks on my door or left the window open when it's 37 degrees out, um, as it is here today, by the way, in Greece. <laughs> so by speaking about it, um, you know, victim survivors can realize that actually they're not alone, that actually there are a lot of people out there and there is no to be shamed about. You, you say disgrace, you're completely right. Disgrace was meant to mean, um, isn't it disgraceful that things have got worse? But disgrace also in the book is supposed to mean who should be disgraced? And of course, we victim survivors, who is disgraced by this? It is those people who commit these acts, they are disgraceful. It is those husbands or boyfriends who wear down and know. Um, um, it is those bystanders who don't just don't do anything or don't care. You know, these are the people who ought to be disgraced. Um, and yeah, um, so so the, the disgrace I think has a number of different layers to it, both personal and political. Sure. Um, and as you note, uh, also the system of injustice, the system that um, that plays upon shame, the shame that keeps people from reporting. And then that becomes a reason that the rape, this rape trial may not result in conviction. Right. And absolutely, Yana. And, you know, it's used by police as well. And so in other words, it's not only used um, in, in local context, it's also used in institutional context, such as the police 
who routinely tell victims, you do realize that the trial is going to be a second assault, equivalent to a second assault. So, you know, they are shaming victims. You do realize that your whole um, life will be unpicked in, in court. You do realize that the fact that you've slept with other men or indeed slept with that man in the past is going to be revealed to your whole community. Um, you know, that, that you know, these are powerful things that um, occur also institutionally, police and justice, so-called justice systems. This book is not entirely without hope, however. <laughs> right? um, and throughout, I mean, there are pieces throughout where you're reminded about human resilience and localized power and and, and the number of people who went through all of this, this terrible gauntlet you've just described, and still sought justice and often got it. So there are there are beacons of like light throughout. And I don't want you, I don't want our listeners to think it is, it will be a, not, a terribly painful read. It's not endless pain. But also you end with the promise of kind of a rape-free world. What does that look like? Yeah. You know, uh, We've heard, you, know, you and I have been talking for what, for three quarters of an hour now, um, some really distressing stories, and I'm, I want to apologize to any listeners, but, you know, the book is about hope, um, because every single chapter has examples of people um, of all genders who have resisted successfully, um, who have used their encounters in positive ways, who have forged um, communities and uh, coalitions with others. I do see it's possible to have a rape-free world. I spend time in the book showing that, you know, one of the reasons I'm an historian is because history shows us that things change. <laughs> things don't always stay the same. Um, you know, we can create worlds which um, don't have sexual violence. There have been worlds that have extremely low levels of sexual violence, and I, I talk about those. I think there are there are kind of five ways forward that I focus on in the book. Um, that if we are going to forge rape-free worlds, I think we need to think seriously about. Um, the first one is local. Um, that. Small local change can lead to global effects. So, you know, we start where we are. We start with what we know, with our families, our communities, our nation. You know, we start with what we know and we grow from there. You know, the Haitian feminists um, after the earthquake, um, you know, which devastated, you know, entire communities, they did small things to help the survivors of sexual um, violence, which was rife after the earthquake. But these small things, walking women, accompanying women to the loos at night, um, giving health care and stuff like that, you know, were life-saving um, for the women involved. So local is the really um, important. Um, second thing is diversity. And diversity here, I mean two different ways. First is the very obvious one that we need to involve everyone, every global citizen. This is all of our responsibility. Um, and so we need to be diverse. And one of the ones that really um, I, I emphasize in the book is the need for feminists to embrace men and non-binary genders in our activism. And certainly in the past, less so now, there's been a reluctance there. But, you know, the main perpetrators are men. 
and we need boys and men and we need their labors and they want to help us, <laughs> you know. Um, but I also mean diversity in terms of strategy. There is no one solution. Um, we all have different spheres of influence. We all have different talents um, and we all need to use those. So diversity is in terms of strategy. Then, and this will, this will please you, Yana, I think we need pleasure. Because anti-rape activism, you can be dispiriting, it can be a bit depressing. Um, so we need just to involve art, music, theatre. Yeah, we need to be positive. We need to, um, we need to experience the joy of being with other strong people, strong survivors. So pleasure is really important, and the body. Um, but And by the body, I mean, hashtag feminism is great. I'm a big supporter, but it's never enough. You know, hashtag feminism can be very individualizing, very isolating. Um, we need to group with other people physically, in, you know, in the flesh, making, you know, making links with other people. But overall, I think we also need to think seriously about a concept which sounds difficult, but it's not, which is called transversalism, which is just a concept which very simply provides a way of uniting in solidarity with other people who may not agree with us on everything, but we can agree on we want a rape-free world. So I'll just give you one quick example. You know, the anti-pornography feminists who think that sexual violence is caused by porn and the um, sex-positive feminists who think we need better porn, not less porn, are never going to see eye to eye. But they can unite under this banner of let's create a rape-free world. Okay? They can still fight about the different things separately, but uniting. So in other words, it's a call to forget about similarities between women, emphasize difference, um, forget about identity politics, um, instead emphasize coalitions. And I think personally that we all want, humans want friendship. We want communion. We want love. <laughs> Um, and if you know, we can fight for these things, we can fight for better worlds. Wonderful. That's so uplifting, right? Terror is local, but hope is as well. And then hope can hope is global, right? Love is global. Absolutely. But global with difference. You know, in other words, it is a global thing, but I have to respect the absolute difference between me and a Dalit activist, um, for example, in, in India. You know, this is a global thing, Hope. Um, we have a global task to do here. It's not going, a rape-free world isn't going to come out of nation states. It's not going to come out of America. It's not going to come out of France. It's going to come out of a global movement. Um, that's what we need to be, to be work, working um, towards. Wow, thanks. Thanks so much. Um, I, I've taken up a good bit of your time, so I'll just one last question and then we'll we'll go. But uh, so what are you working on now? Are you is there more about rape in your future or what are we gonna see? Well I'm, I'm writing the um 
second book of the project, which is looking at medical and psychiatric aspects of sexual violence. And then I'm never going to write about sexual violence again. <laughs> this is the <laughs> that is it. <laughs> that is it. But I'm just finishing off off that book, which is the second book of of the project. But I'm looking forward in the future to you know writing something really maybe really positive. I think. I mean, Jana, what do you think? Should I write a history of love? Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, of course. Idea. A universal history of love. A global history of love sounds wonderful. Equally um, ambitious, I think, is the word we decided to go to. Not, Not impossible or unlikely, but ambitious. I love it. Wonderful. Thanks so much for your time. And take care. Enjoy your uh, warm and beautiful Greek day down there. It's been great talking to you.